What is the Podcast Matrix? The Podcast Matrix is your source for podcast media hosting. Get your entire podcast library hosted now at podcastermatrix.com. Have you ever had the feeling of being watched? Hidden eyes following you, a cold chill crawling up your spine, the hairs on the back of your neck standing straight up. Do you know what that is? It's fear. Fear. Fear is the most basic human emotion tied into our instinct to survive. Fear gives us the means to overcome great odds or cripple us with paralyzing dread. Fear can also entertain. Turn off all the lights, lock your closet door, and ignore the sounds from beneath your bed. It's time for Two Guys Talking Horror. The act of dreaming is an important part of our sleeping habits. Dreams are thought of as the brain's way of helping us decompress from the day's trials and tribulations. But not all sleep is restful. Sometimes dreams have a nasty habit of going bad, transforming into nightmares. If dreams are just movies in our mind, made from a patchwork of memories and feelings swirling in our subconscious, then nightmares are just mental horror films created from life's stresses with a heaping helping of fear and anger mixed in. Sure, they may be awful at the time, but once we wake up, the terror is over. That is, if we wake up. For a generation of horror moviegoers, nightmares had a burnt face, a dirty red and green sweater, and a gloved hand with four razor-sharp blades. Brew a pot of coffee, grab a bottle of no-dos, and whatever you do, don't fall asleep. As Two Guys Talking Horror brings you the perspective review of 1984's A Nightmare on Elm Street. Greetings, ladies and gentlemen, boys and ghouls. Welcome to another edition of Two Guys Talking Horror. This time, it is the perspective review of A Nightmare on Elm Street. I am one of your hosts, Nicholas J. Hearn. And I'm your other host, Jason Cantini. Usually, Jason, we don't try to date the podcast, but uh, as of right now, as of the recording of this, we are celebrating Nightmare on Elm Street's 35th anniversary. 35 years old before we dive straight into this perspective review got to take care of a little bit of housekeeping the curious goods podcast it amazes me how much we have right now where entertainment is concerned especially old entertainment and with all of the streaming options i mean you've got hulu you've got netflix 
You've got Shudder. You've got Amazon Prime, which then lets you stream a whole bunch of other stuff, too. We also now, just just recently, just this month, Disney Plus started. There's so much streaming content of both current and old older stuff. But guess what's not streaming on any of those services? Friday the 13th, the series. Not on a single service. Not on any of them. The only way mm. you get to watch this is if you actually own the box set that was released a few years ago. And sadly, not a lot of people have grabbed that set. Now, if you were a fan of that show, I highly recommend grabbing the box set. It's not that expensive. And not that hard to find no, still. No, it's really. still on regular Walmart Target shelves. I've yep. seen it all the time. Yep. There are, it's all over the place. And if you don't want to leave your house, yep. guess what? You can order it online. Very yep. inexpensive. The reason why I'm telling you to do this is even if you were just mildly amused by the show, we have something to offer you. Two Guys Talking Horror has taken upon themselves to go back and dig up this dead show and review it episode by episode, season by season. It's called The Curious Goods Podcast, of course, named after the shop, the antique shop that the show revolves around. And it's, it's me and uh, my co-host, Mike Wilkerson. What we do is we do a uh, humorous retelling of the episode so that if you can't watch it, you at least get a feeling and an understanding of what the episode was about. And then we go in and we review it. There's going to be a link in the show notes to this perspective review that'll lead you over to the Curious Goods podcast. So if you are a fan of Friday the 13th, the series, or if you know of a fan of Friday the 13th, the series, Definitely give it a listen. Box office books. Back in 1984, how much do you think it cost the studio to make this movie back in 1984? I'm going to take a stab in the dark. Okay. And say probably about a million. About a million. You're close. You're extremely close. It, it was actually $1.8 million okay. Okay. to make this film. That doesn't sound like a lot coming from a Hollywood film. No. But again, you have to remember, this was really like the first big movie I was gonna say, New Line did. You know, they, they'd done a couple of smaller ones. And and still, 1984, you know, $1.8 stretches a lot farther than mm-hmm. it does now, especially for horror films. Yeah. That's a big horror film that's a big budget mm-hmm. in 1984 but yet still not you know on the same level as something like a poltergeist right well yeah you know uh, it's still got not a big, a big hollywood yeah. film you know? yeah you got a big name attached to poltergeist you've got right. steven spielberg people right. are gonna go oh steven spielberg well, i'll go go see this movie you've got toby hooper attached to that oh toby hooper well yeah. i'll go see this movie yeah Wes west west who west who Oh, he did those. He did that movie. He did those extremely yeah. violent and disturbing films. Oh, okay. Well, maybe I'll go see it. The amazing thing about the film in general is the fact that this money that I mean, this was it. If 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 the film was not a success, there wouldn't have been a new line cinema. I sure. mean, it would have it would have gone poof. Then this is why a lot of people in the industry, including the people who worked for New Line, say that New Line is the house that Freddie built. Right. Now that opening weekend, uh, big gamble, hu- well, huge gamble, really, when you think about it, the domestic opening was actually 1,271,000. So 
So almost made back its budget. Its budget in, one, in the yep. in the weekend in that yep. opening weekend. So that that's a great start, which you know at any time is unheard of. And mm-hmm. I think now you know the only times that we hear that even coming close to happening is if if a Marvel movie comes out, right, or maybe a Star Wars movie. It's certainly not any kind of a regular thing, and definitely not for a horror film in 1984. That's a that's a huge, huge deal. Yeah, yeah, especially for the opening weekend, and the overall intake uh, for for domestic box office was just about twenty five and a half million dollars. Hmm. Those are pretty good numbers pretty for good. a horror movie. Yeah. So kudos to a Nightmare on Elm Street making that box office bank. First experiences, 1984, November of 1984. You and I are both five for five years old. Five, yeah. Yeah. I don't know if I could actually say I remember anything about this film, like on television, like a trailer on television or anything like that. I certainly do not. There might be some minuscule flashes in my mind of of Freddy on the cover of a horror magazine if mm. my dad brought one home from from the comic shop or yeah. something that that's a slim possibility but but I also don't know how much of my memory of that kind of stuff and that kind of hype around the film comes from the initial release yeah. and how much of it comes from the Freddy Krueger sensation that came in the years to follow. Oh, well, yeah. Which yeah. I, I, I kind of think that most of my memory of hype probably comes from the latter. The first nightmare film I saw was actually part two. Hmm. And it was in bits and pieces because I was actually sneaking the film. The apartment that we were living in at the time, the TV was against one wall then, you know, you have the, the couch there, and then behind the couch a little ways was the stairway upstairs. So while my mother and her boyfriend are watching a horror movie, I slowly slink downstairs just enough to where I can peek through. And let me tell you, big mistake. <laughs> because uh, I, I want to say I was probably seven when I had this experience. And, oh, it messed me up, man. It messed me up for a good couple of nights, especially that first night, because I run up to my room, I, I, I jump in my bed, and I, I'm, I'm laying there, and my closet door slowly starts to creak open, and there, about, oh, maybe eight, nine inches from the floor are these two glowing red eyes, and there's wisps of smoke coming out, and I... I about peed my pants. <laughs> and all I all I can remember is is staring at those eyes until I evidently passed out because when I wake up in the morning to investigate, I find this uh little robot that when you turn him on, he he runs around, he's got the glowing red eyes and he spits out smoke. <laughs> evidently the batteries were dying. To where it moved just enough to open the closet door and kind of just stayed there, spittled a little smoke out, and the eyes evidently just went dim, and that's when I probably fell asleep. So, so yeah, it's my own damn fault because A, I snuck the movie, and B, I didn't turn off my toys before I threw them in the closet like a good boy would have. So let me ask you this then. 
before I, I jump in and reciprocate with stories. What was your first experience with the very first film? With the first film, it was I went. It was actually closer to the release of Dream Warriors because mm. because my mother's boyfriend at the time he was obsessed with horror movies. It was either horror movies or war action movies okay. that he would watch. And I want to say right before or right at the time that Dream Warriors came to video cassette, the other two movies were rented again, and I was still not old enough to really watch the films, but the way that my mother's boyfriend handled things was, he's got to be a man at some point in time, so... <laughs> Well, yeah. All right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, probably not the best parenting in the world, but I still but, uh, I hey, was able to see some. I say, you got to see Freddy Krueger. I was able to see some great horror films uh, way before the time in which I should have been able to. It's funny that um, the second one was your first experience with, with the franchise in general. My first was uh, the fifth film. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I don't, uh, I don't know that it, it was a case of not being necessarily allowed to see those movies, uh, you know, in our house, I, I was shown some pretty crazy things at some pretty young ages mm-hmm. because we always made sure to talk about it and we always made sure to, you know, to differentiate between reality and entertainment. Oh, yeah. For whatever reason, and I, I think it was because my dad just personally didn't care for the horror films of that era, Yeah, it was never really allowed to be on. Um, and not in a sense that, oh, you can't see that, it's too graphic, or it's too bloody, or it's too whatever, but more in the sense that, oh, you can't watch that because I'm sitting here and I don't want to watch it with you, and we're going to put something else on Right, I don't, I don't um, want to watch something stupid. Right, yeah. yeah. So I never I never got to really see any of them. All I really knew of Freddy was from posters, and um, some friends uh, had a sleepover or something like that, I think, and they had a copy of Five on VHS. Mm. And kind of weird that the lowest grossing film yeah. in the series is your first experience. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, being very young still at that time, you know, or at least impressionably young, you know, that film on one hand was confusing to me. Right. Because I felt kind of like I was dropped into this middle. But at the same time, I understood it enough to follow what was happening there. And visually was just astounded and just uh, blown away by everything that happens in it. it. It wasn't until years later when I saw it again the second time that I realized how how weak it is compared to some of the <laughs> others. But at the time, I thought, oh, man, this is cool. I'm watching a Freddy Krueger movie. Yeah. Uh, no, I probably didn't see the first film, this film, the 84 version, until I want to say maybe I was 18 or 19. Oh, wow. I came into... I guess what kids would call today as the classic horror, which would be probably anything 70s to early to mid 90s. I didn't really come into that kind of stuff until end of high school, early college. Hmm. Because again, like I said, you know, we grew up in our house with the real classics, the, you know, the Hammer stuff and Universal and all of that. So I just, there wasn't really a whole lot of opportunities for me to see a lot of that stuff. So, yeah, first first time I saw Nightmare, I rented it from, I want to say, a supermarket. Hmm. I was going through and renting a bunch of different classic 
slashers and horrors from the late 70s and early 80s. And uh, and I thought, you know, I've never seen this. I should probably watch it. All right. Yeah. Um, and and I have to say, the first time I saw it, I was a little disappointed. <laughs> um, it wasn't until I I was uh, I was a couple of years later when I finally was like, oh wow, okay, I see this is this film's place. I see how it was scary to, to you know to the time, and there are there are moments that are still still scary today. Mm-hmm. I think. Well, those were our experiences, but we want to know what your first exposure to a nightmare on Elm Street was. Reach out to us at our website over at twoguystalkinghorror.com. Fill out the contact form and let us know your experiences. Well, we've gotten through all the preliminary stuff, but let's dive straight into this perspective review for 1984's A Nightmare on Elm Street. The Goods. Building a Nightmare. Now, before we actually start talking about the movie itself, I think it's very important to briefly touch upon how the movie came together. Yeah. This was Wes Craven's third film. His first was Last House on the Left, and then he followed that up with The Hills Have Eyes. (laughs) What are you going to do for an encore's encore, Wes? Well, it's going to be... A Nightmare on Elm Street. And the interesting way that the the story of the script came about, it came about of two real-life occurrences. Yeah. The first is an actual news article that Wes read in the LA Times, I do believe. I think you're right. I think uh, it was that. Yeah. That revolved around teenagers of Asian descent dying in their sleep. Yeah. He goes through the article, and the article talks about how the kid would not sleep. The father was a doctor, so he prescribed him sleeping pills. First night, kid doesn't go to bed. Second night, kid doesn't go to bed. A handful of nights, kids just will not sleep, and he's getting a little bit more unhinged. And he feels, he, tell, he, he warns his parents, he's like, I feel like if I go to sleep, I'm going to die. Well, after a handful of days, kid finally falls asleep. Parents take him up to his room. They're like, fine, thank God, that's all over. And a few minutes later, they hear screaming, and he's thrashing in his bed, and he just stops. And he's dead. Yeah. It's not until after, you know, the body is removed and, and things like that that they discover all of the sleeping pills that they had given him, he had stuffed inside of his mattress, and there was a hidden coffee pot with a, an extension cord yep. running to an outlet, and he was drinking black coffee and not sleeping. Constant. Yeah, it's it, it's wild to think about that, but I can totally understand how a story like that could just state in oh, someone's yeah. b- brain. Oh yeah, and go like, "There's a story there." Now, the other half of the creation of the movie comes from a an experience from Wes's childhood. One night, late at night, uh, Wes is in bed. He hears a mumbling and a, a, a you know a, a commotion outside, and he gets up, and there's a man. An older man with a coat and a hat, kind of mumbling to himself. And the man looks up at him, up at the window, and locks eyes with young Wes. Wes is definitely shaken, and he moves away from the window, and he stays very still, takes a handful of breaths, thinking, okay, he's, he's got to be gone by now, creeps to the window to check to make sure everything's clear, and no, that guy is still there, staring at him. 
And adult Wes has carried that inside of him for, for so long. In interviews, he said it's the look on the man's face. The look of malice, but then the, the look of glee in torturing a child and, mm. and scaring a child. Th- there is your precursor of, yep. of Freddy Krueger. The other interesting thing about the film as it was preparing to shoot is everybody loves Robert England. Everybody, I mean, that's that's pretty much what Robert England is known for. Oh, yeah. If you are a horror fan, it is Freddy Krueger and then everything else he's done. That's, I think, what gave him the crown. I mean, you know, if you, if you think about horror stars through history and how the crown has passed from, say, Karloff to Price to Lee or, you know, so on, I, I think that during the 80s and, and maybe early 90s, Robert England certainly held the crown. Oh, yeah. Oh, definitely. He was not the first choice. Really? Yeah. Wes wanted Freddy Krueger to be an older man. Like his... Similar to his his experience. Yeah. The original person cast to play Freddy Krueger was David Warner. No kidding. No kidding at all. Now, now that would have been a very interesting take. Hmm. Because I love David Warner. I mean, he's an excellent actor. But... I don't see him pulling off the the menace that Robert England delivers in that performance. It would have been a quieter, maybe more more manipulative, mm. perhaps, menace. Because he certainly, you know, Warner can certainly do that. But it's it's a little and maybe even a little snootier too. He certainly has yeah. a kind of a smugness in his antagonist characters yeah Um, i think the age difference would have been a factor as well because i think because robert was so young at the time mm, he had all of this energy as well to do the yeah 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 but yes interesting robert england not the first choice but the best choice (laughs) a killer score something that is very important in any horror film is the sound mixing and the score. Yep. It can make or break a film. It, it can, and it does. There are plenty of stories from John Carpenter saying that during viewings of Halloween with no score, nobody was scared at all. Yep. But and I can totally understand. I, I can too. But you add that score, and people are on the edge of their seats and extremely nervous. The same thing, I, I believe, could be said for this film as well. It's very atmospheric at times, which is great, but it's the score from composer Charles Bernstein. No relation to Elmer. No. That puts you on edge, that Mm -hmm. makes you feel uneasy. And I think it's actually due to the fact that he uses uneven chords at certain times. Yes. And a lot of flats. A lot of flat notes. A lot of flats. And, um, yeah. I mean, I don't know a a whole lot about... Music, but um, I have certainly learned more in recent years, especially about scoring film. And um, Bernstein certainly uses very strange notes in in very strange formations to give it kind of an eerie dream or nightmare like sound. And it definitely works. Yeah. One, two, three, coming for you. The Glove and the Boiler Room. Rarely do you have a horror film that 
sets its tone within the first minute. I mean, we we never see any faces. It's just the hands on the workbench and the surroundings of the boiler room. And in kind of a smaller framing. Yeah. You know, it doesn't fill the whole screen, which also, you know, there's no filters on it to, to do this, but, but just the size and the aspect ratio of the image during that opening sequence mm. uh, does kind of lend a pseudo-documentary feel to it, almost as if you are seeing something that actually occurred. Right, and something seeing something that, that you're not supposed to be And that you're not supposed seeing. to be seeing, yeah. 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 And then we transition into the nightmare, into Tina's nightmare, which I feel is done very well. The stark white from the hallway, from the background, with all of the blacks coming forward in this this nice tunnel effect. And then she slides on into the boiler room. And one of the great things I love about re-watching movies that I loved as a kid with adult eyes is I constantly see things that I've, I didn't notice previously. Yeah. Because I was either not paying attention or I was too scared or, or what, what, many Or you're, many you're in the wrong place at the wrong time mentally sometimes, yeah. you know? Sometimes a, a film, you know, like I said, this is one of my all-time favorite films, but the first time I saw it, I was disappointed. Mm. And the only thing I can think there is that I wasn't in the right mind space. So, yeah, if it's a good film, absolutely you can rewatch it and always get something new out of it yeah. and get something something different. And yeah, I, I agree. This opening sequence, you know, there's so much, certainly from, from a directing standpoint, but, mm. but there's so much in that opening sequence that, that you can really pick it apart. I mean, you could spend like probably a whole podcast just on that first, what is it, five, ten minutes? Not even that. I thought it was is probably, it not probably even that? It's like just, five minutes, yeah, yeah. yeah. One of my favorite shots is you see Tina is walking along a catwalk, and the camera is pulled back far enough to where you see the floor below. And just underneath where Tina is walking, you're not really paying attention to it, but there is a shadow on the wall. And as Tina walks, the shadow moves. And it's actually Freddy walking right underneath her. And I've noticed it years before, but then, you know, you kind of start forgetting things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And... I was watching this Halloween, uh, this past October. I was watching the movie again, and I was really paying attention to things because I knew we were going to be doing this perspective review soon. And I noticed that, and I was like, I know I've seen that before, but it's almost like I'm seeing it for the first time Mm -hmm. again because Mm -hmm. I was like, that is a really cool effect. That is a really cool shot. Representing youth. Nowadays, writers, directors, producers, studios, they will bend over backwards, for better or for worse, to represent diversity. Yes. And as I said, sometimes that's a good thing, but sometimes that hinders you. Well, back in the mid-80s, and I'm not saying this is a good thing, but they really didn't care. Yeah. You know, where diversity was concerned. And I throw that out there so that we can now continue to talk about these three white 
suburban kids upper middle class kind yeah. of yeah mm-hmm. and the the one latin american yeah in the group that was actually posing as italian yep to get the job we're introduced to tina's friends amanda weiss as tina we've got heather langenkamp as nancy johnny depp in his first, his first real film, acting yep. film role as glenn and then Che Sue Garcia as as Rod. And of course he was going by Nick Corey back then so we could actually get work. Right. And this is of a, a nice middle American interpretation of teenage life. Now, I don't know teenagers like this. I've been out of the game for a very long time. And personally speaking, I didn't really know teenagers like that when I was a teenager. Yeah. But that's what Hollywood feels like teenagers are all about. Usually, Hollywood gets it wrong, or at least half right. The interpretations of teenagers in this film, I, I would have to say, are damn good. Yeah, yeah, for the most part. I mean, there's there's uh, a few things here and there, which, you know, you could nitpick on, and maybe we will later. But no, for the most part, the the nice thing is that they don't look like they're 40-year-olds trying to play right. high schoolers, which you see a lot of times. Yeah. In fact, they don't even really look like they're in their mid-20s. You know, I mean, maybe at most they're 20. Mm-hmm. They look appropriate for the age, and they seem to act appropriate to, to that age. Um, I could buy that they're all seniors. I could, absolutely, yeah. Totally, I could totally buy that. Especially then. I mean, I, I know it sounds kind of generalized, but it does sort of feel like... Physically, seniors on a whole mm. today, high schoolers on a whole today, are not physically as matured right. as they were years ago. And I don't know what that is. I don't, you know, I'm not going to speculate on what what technology. Does that, but yeah, maybe, <laughs> maybe food <laughs> technology. I don't know the internets. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah, they they looked like high school seniors. Absolutely. Yeah, I I like the fact that they're relatable. Mm-hmm. You know, as as a young adult, I could kind of sympathize with what they were going through because, you know, it's a, the parents don't get me. Uh, they think I'm one thing, but really I'm another. I have this whole separate life when I'm not at home and I'm surrounded with my friends. I'm acting one way when I'm with them. I have to act a different way when I'm around my parents. Totally get that, and it's represented very well in this film. Five, six, Tina's death. Now, a nod to Hitchcock for this movie. You're introduced to Tina at the very beginning, so automatically you assume this is the character I'm going to be following for the whole film. Yep. Uh, Wrong. (laughs) Not even 20 minutes into the film, we get probably one of the best captured on film death scenes that I can think of in a long time, especially for that day and age. After having loud, rambunctious sex with Rod, Tina falls asleep and believes that she's not asleep. Of course, you know, we're all supposed to believe she's not asleep. Starts hearing noises outside and and somebody is tap, tap, tapping, throwing little little pebbles at the the window 
and saying her name, Tina, Tina. And of course, like any smart person, Tina decides to not wake <laughs> anybody up and go outside to investigate. And not, not even get dressed. No, and go, like, she just goes out in her nighty. That's right. <laughs> Again, it, it, it's, it's li- the little subtle things that make us go, oh, okay, so the, yeah, dreaming. Gotcha. Because no person in their right mind well, and, would and, do something like that. And it's interesting that you that you put it that way because I, you know I, I too rewatched it this past Halloween because mm-hmm. um, I, I watch it every Halloween. One of the things that my wife and I were talking about as we were watching the film is is she always has problems with characters in films who do things that are not normal or natural Mm -hmm. you know if you hear something outside first off it's not normal to not try to get anyone else to go with you but if you don't if you go on your own are you really going to go outside in the fall wearing your nightgown and underwear and that's it and no shoes or anything that's ridiculous and no weapon and no weapon nothing like you're going to go out into the alley dressed like that like you know that's something that that's really grates on her nerves however what we really paid attention to in this last viewing was the fact that that's excusable mm-hmm. in this film because of when you're in a dream or a nightmare, you don't have that same rationality. Yeah. In this scene, by having her do that in this scene and seeing her that way in the very beginning, I think what it does is it sets up the idea that you can't base what's happening on just the visual that you're seeing, mm-hmm. which in a movie is kind of, you know, how do you how do you not get scared of everything then? Because a movie is nothing but visual. Right. So if you show something that is normally accepted in a horror film, but explain it away, suddenly that makes everything kind of fair game mm-hmm. in a sense, if that makes any sense. Right. It's the dream world, so you you have to make it feel as realistic as possible for the audience goers. But I I love the fact that there are moments where you could go, well, she's got to be dreaming. Right. Because no normal person would be making these stupid mistakes. You know, and she goes outside, she goes through her backyard, she goes out into the alley, and oh, guess who's in the alley waiting for her? Freddy frickin' Krueger. And we've got, it's not a great effect where today's standards are concerned. And I don't even know if it was really a great effect where 1984 standards are concerned. But I think maybe the fact that we don't linger on it, the whole elongated arm. Yeah, the extending arm. Yeah. It's not that great. It's, it's cool. And I think with a little bit more. Uh, with more money, they probably could have made it even cooler than just a bunch of guys with extra long fishing poles basically using these arms like a marionette. It's a cool effect, and we get we get that great line. Tina Tina's freaked out, and she goes, oh, God, and, and we get Freddy with the glove. Right by the face. Now, this is God. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, that's a line that is right up there with... The end of Hellraiser, you know, Jesus wept. Oh, yeah. And he's pulled apart. I mean, it's I, it's little lines like that. I would say it's right up there with he really was the boogeyman, wasn't he? I mean, as a I, matter I of fact, as a matter of fact, he, he was. was. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I think that's it's, it's, it's one lines of the like 10 that. greatest lines. Yeah. I, I would even say it's right up there with 
the children of the night, what music, what music they, they make. make yeah. I mean, it, you know, and that's a big one to be compared to. I'd say it's right there with that. Yeah. Tina is chased back through her backyard and and cannot get into the house. I mean, it was unlocked when she left. Mm-hmm. So, and, I mean, Freddie's there now, so we all know, okay, she's got to be dreaming. And we're, we're taken back to the real world, and we now see Rod watching Tina being thrashed around, and the four claw marks appear on her chest, and just blood starts gushing. And then we get the great effect of Tina being lifted up and dragged across the wall and on the ceiling. Now, of course, the way they shot that, it was a revolving room. Right. And the fact that I just love going back to older films before the creation of CGI and marveling at how these effects are pulled off and pulled off effectively. I remember once I once I saw the movie, it's still remember young age seeing something like that. My little mind broke. I'm like, uh -uh, uh-uh, uh-uh, (laughs) uh-uh. And she just drops at the end with a plunk sound because there's so much blood in the bed. How do how do you go to bed later on that night after seeing something like that? Now, see, when I saw the film, again, I was, you know, 18, 19, something like that for the first time. So when I saw that first scene, I thought it was an amazing scene, and I thought it was super cool. But by that point, you know, you're 18, you're 19 years old. You've spent, you know, you're just shy of 20 years of life watching all kinds of film and studying film. Yeah. So I sat there going, oh, my gosh, this is perhaps the best use of a rotating room since maybe Fred Astaire danced on the walls and the ceilings right. 40, 50 years prior, whatever that was, 30 years prior. But, you know, that that was an effect that was not pulled off well all the time. Mm, yeah. And here, you know, here we have this horror film that was not a tiny horror film, but it was not a big movie. Mm. And it made it look so seamless. I mean, you, unless you know how a rotating room works and know how to shoot a scene like that, it's very, very, very difficult to actually see the let's say, the seams in that sequence because it's pulled off so well. Sleeping in class. Tina's dead. Nancy's not dealing with it very well. She doesn't want to stay home with her alcoholic mother. She decides she's going to go to school. And while walking to school, she's grabbed by rod who says i didn't i never touched her there was somebody else in the room but couldn't see him uh uh, turns out she was being used as bait by her father who is a lieutenant of the local police department even after all that kerfuffle she still continues to go to school and we get to see her in i i I guess we're going to call it a a language class maybe a literature class something like that Uh, and they're they're studying shakespeare and one of the students is asked to stand up and read aloud. And you can tell because of that reading, brilliant way to do it. You can tell when Nancy is still awake yeah, and when she falls asleep. Because when she's still awake, the student is kind of just talking like this because he doesn't like reading aloud. But then as she falls asleep, 
the speech pattern changes to something very eerie. Yeah, and very intentionally monotone. Yeah, it's, intentionally. It's, yeah, it's very bizarre. And, and it's almost like it's like okay, we're not going to even try to pretend that we're we're not trying to trick you this time. She's going. She's going to sleep. She's in a dream. She's going to have a nightmare because then she looks up. There's Tina in a body bag outside in the hallway. Mm-hmm. So Nancy follows Tina's slime trail because it's <laughs> it, it almost looks too dark to be actual blood. And I know blood as it dries gets really really dark, but it almost has a more green tint to it than than red. And you see the body bag being dragged away by nobody. Which I think is probably my favorite effect in the whole Oh, movie. yeah? Yeah. I, I don't know why that effect really hit me when I well, first saw it. Well, it's great because she's dragged away, but then her arm falls out of yeah, the body bag yeah. and then trails behind. Yeah. Well, oh. and I think her legs get lifted up. Yeah. Don't legs they? get if lifted they, up. And they get pulled by and her pulled, legs. But right. Yeah, and I'm I'm sure that there's some sort of a pulley system. Maybe it's green screen wire or something. I don't know, but it's again so seamlessly done that it always just stuck with me. It's it's my favorite effect in the whole film, in the whole first movie. Oh wow, wow. Okay, didn't know that. Interesting. As Nancy turns the corner, she runs smack dab into the hall monitor. I never had a hall monitor in any of the schools I went to. Yeah. So neither, neither did I. This was a alien concept to me. I'm like, why is everybody asking about passes? And the interesting thing about this scene is is not necessarily when the the hall monitor calls Nancy back and clearly has the glove on and and is talking in Freddie's voice. It's the fact that now there are leaves everywhere mm-hmm. in the hallway. So they give you this this trick of Maybe Nancy's sleepwalking and she saw this and now she's awake because there's the hall monitor. But now it's like, oh, no, no, no. That was just a tease. Little little quick tease. We're still dreaming. And we follow Nancy down into the boiler room. And the creepy thing about it is, is that most schools have something similar yeah. to the boiler room. I mean, they most big buildings like that do yeah. have a boiler room or utility room is probably what they would call it nowadays. I remember in my old elementary school, oh yeah, in the basement, there was a huge area that looked creepy as hell, just like Freddy's boiler room. I think uh, the boiler room at our high school which was still an active boiler room, you know, the, you know, the stuff, the, all the meters were in there that yeah. needed to be checked regularly. But it was located where our little black box theater was. Oh. And we, I went to an all-guys high school. And any time we did shows that had female roles, we'd get girls from other schools. Well, the, the drama classroom was the guys' dressing room. And on shows like that, the creepy boiler room ended up being the dressing room <laughs> that the girls would stay in and when it wasn't being used as a dressing room it was also doubling as our prop and and costume room so you know you walk in there with with just a, a slight small little light on or just a glow from the hallway and you've got all these creepy old props and these weird old costumes and there's these giant boiler, you know, meters and gauges. Uh, yeah, it was it was a little creepy. It was very different from Freddy's boiler room, but yeah. It but was, still creepy. But it was still creepy. But still creepy. 
Freddie is stalking young Nancy and uh, backs her into a corner. These are all great images designed to keep you on edge because we're still not seeing his face because of technology and transfers from film to VHS to DVD to now Blu-ray and high def. There are scenes that are much darker in older versions that are, well, almost clear as day. During Tina's death scene, you get a real good look, two actually real good looks of Freddy, if you're watching the Blu-ray transfer, which I was. I I was lucky enough to pick up the entire series on a nice box Mm. set Blu-ray. I mean, you're, you're seeing him as plain as day. So the, the effect of not showing him as much, which they were totally going for, kind of loses its mystique depending on what platform you're watching it with. Now, see, I, I have the, the old DVD box set where the spines form, form Freddy, the Freddy. Holding out. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah, that's, that's what I have. And so that's what the copy that I watch all the time. And I used to have it on VHS, too. Mm-hmm, yeah. Yes, I have to say that the DVD is brighter than the VHS, and there is there is more detail that can be seen. Right. Having said that, without having actually seen the Blu-ray, I think I would prefer to keep those films on DVD and mm-hmm. not upgrade yeah. because of that very fact, because I do think it is more effective when you don't see as much. Yeah, no, and, and I think that's one of the reasons why back then it was so scary. And maybe nowadays it's more looked as campy to a younger generation that's used to all this other stuff that you get in horror movies nowadays. Again, unless they watch it on DVD instead of Blu-ray. True. Very true. But even all the transfers in the streaming services are yeah, usually they're using that, that upgrade. Or the 4K now. And they've got yeah. oh, the 4K. Don't even get me started on that. Nine, ten, never sleep again. Nancy and Glenn take a midnight stroll. The characters of Nancy and Glenn are very subdued relationship-wise. And I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. Of course I'm not, because it's here in the goods. They don't seem to have... The stereotypical, I have to be all over you, teenage relationship that is presented in most horror films. And West is very good at doing this. I mean, at, uh, another example, take a look at Scream. Mm-hmm. You know, Sydney and Billy, they weren't all over each other all the time. Now, sure, Sydney was dealing with her own problems with her mother's death and all, but it wasn't like they were all over each other. I think it's a little more natural and realistic. Yeah. At least to me, it's it yeah. always seemed that way. My high school girlfriend, you know, we had the times where we were, you know, alone and necking, as the kids say. Well, they probably don't say that anymore. <laughs> but for the mo- majority of the time, you know, we're, we're, we're just two people spending time together and, and, and talking. Yeah. yeah. And you get that with Nancy and Glenn. Glenn comes on over. There's this nice lattice on the front of the Nancy's house, and he climbs the lattice, sneaks into the room, and they have this conversation. Nancy has a plan because she knows that there's something going on where the dreams are concerned. 
the 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 burn mark that she gave herself to wake up in her previous dream is proof there's something going on we're led to believe that her plan is she's going to walk to the police station to check on rod and glenn is supposed to follow behind and keep an eye on her but stay hidden in case the bad guy comes out and he can rush in and play hero this is yet again one of those fake outs it's set up to where you think this is real time. Mm-hmm. Of course she didn't change her clothes. It's the middle of the night. She's she's trying to be stealthy. All right, fine. And there there's Glenn. There, there is Glenn. He's uh, a couple of yards down. He's hiding behind a tree. All right, I believe we're in the real world. But then things start getting a little peculiar. Like, why would we cut through this strange short alleyway and open this weird wooden thrown together door to reveal oh there's the police station i don't know the the layout of springwood but i know it's probably laid out a little bit better than that and that's when you start getting your clues of oh well well maybe she is asleep and she goes to the 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 lower window she peeks in on rod and there he is there's kruger just strolling on into the cell, walks right through the uh, yeah, damn... Yeah, that's so great. Oh, walks right through those bars and starts playing with the sheet, looking up at Nancy, with a big old grin on his face. He knows there's nothing you can do to stop me. It's all it, it, it's all mind games with Kruger. He's, he's playing with her. And she's calling for Glenn, calling, calling, and, well, Glenn ain't responding this time around. But why would he? Because now we know, well, if Freddy's right there, this has to be a dream. And when she realizes that she's alone, this this whisper from behind these bushes comes out. Is anybody there? I'm here. And he jumps out. Great jump scare. Used to get me all the time when I was younger. The music hits right on, right on cue because you've got this nice silent moment beforehand. And the chase is on. And we see Nancy racing through her house and going up the stairs. And she starts falling into the stairs. The stairs turn into jello. Quicksand stairs or something. Yeah, Yeah. it's like a weird, yeah. Because one of the atypical dreams is that you're moving, but you can't move very fast. You're stuck in place. We get this great shot of Kruger struggling with her on her bed while Glenn is passed out next to her. And it's only the alarm clock going off next to her bed that saves Nancy's life. It's at that point in time in the movie that you think that there's a way of combating Kruger because Nancy and Glenn rush to the police station thinking that they can save Rod, thinking that the dream was more of a premonition I know he's going to be next. If we get there fast enough, we're going to be able to save his life. Uh, n- no, that is not the case. And Rod dies by being hung in his cell. And the thing about it is, is that why would anybody think otherwise? Why would th- why would any adult think that there is something malicious going on with Rod's death? Because, well, they all think he was a killer. And he can't deal with the guilt, so he killed himself. Case closed. Yeah. 
I brought something out of my podcast. The Funeral. I've put this scene in the goods because it's very short, but something extremely important happens. If this is your first time ever seeing the film, you don't know what it is. But if you've watched it over and over and over and over again, you know that this is kind of the time where you're starting to connect the dots where the parents are concerned. Mm -hmm. During Rod's funeral, there's a moment where Rod's father looks over at Nancy's father and they have this this look and and you could you could brush it off as okay well Rod was a a troubled kid and by the looks of his father maybe he was too maybe he was a a, a roughhouser as well Nancy's father cop so he's probably had to deal with both of them I was going to say you could take it as as this is not the first time that they've had run-ins with right. with Nancy's father Exactly sure but when you look at the subtext and think of what the parents of Springwood did, you're now you can now start making these connections. And that's and for me, that's the first like, aha, they're thinking it. They don't want to admit it, but they're thinking it. It's mm-hmm. like we didn't stop our kids from dying after all. And and I love that. That's why I had to add this small little scene to the good list. Whatever you do, don't podcast in your sleep. The Dream Clinic. 1984's medicine is almost unrecognizable compared to 2019 medicine. Really, when you think about it. Yeah. We have come leaps and bounds where technology is concerned in the medical field. So it's interesting to watch this scene in the film where Marge, Nancy's mother, has taken Nancy to a, a dream clinic. Mm-hmm. We're, we're not talking to a shrink. We're talking to a doctor who deals in sleep and dreams and things like that. And the fact that the line that is given to the doctor, played by Robert Fleischer, who other people will know is the voice of Roger Rabbit from yep. Who Framed Roger Rabbit, playing Dr. King... Which I have to assume. You, come on, that's gotta be. Wes, it had to be a, yeah. a nod to uh, Stephen King. Marge asked the doctor, So what are dreams? And he's like, You know, mental hocus pocus. Nobody knows what dreams are. But, all, but we do know, you know, if you don't dream, you go. The fact that we know so much more about what dreams do for the body, for, for our mental health, I, I think had we had more of that in the new Nightmare on Elm Street remake, it, it still wouldn't have saved the film. But I think an exploration of what we know now compared to what we know, knew then would have been an interesting angle to take. Yeah. But it's here that we realize something very important. Nancy is having a nightmare. They rush in to wake her up. She has a scar. She has claw marks on her arm. How, how did she do that? Oh, well, fingernails. As you say, they write it off as her oh, fingernails, her fingernails are too fingernails. long or something. Yeah. She has a streak of white uh-huh. in her hair. She is, she is so scared, part of her hair is turned white. And on top of that, there is a dirty brown fedora-like hat in her bed. Where did that come from? Hmm? And yet again, still, adults 
oh, well, you, she just brought the hat in. She's playing with this. It's all her. Yeah. She's doing it. And I got to admit, that's pretty much how parents treat children nowadays. Look at horror movies. Hell, look at movies in general, but really focus on horror movies. The plot kind of depends on adults not listening to the children because if they believed the kids even for a second, then things wouldn't escalate as much as they usually do in horror films. Yeah, yeah. There's a well. Uh, there's a certain fantasy element to all horror films. Mm, well, right. And fantasy is typically not always. And and you know, hopefully, if you're over the age of sixty, seventy, eighty, whatever, um, and you're still holding on to that childlike essence, that's great. But typically speaking, fantasy is more associated with kids mm-hmm. and with young people. You don't have the same responsibilities and things that an adult has you don't uh you know you don't have the same worries and concerns Mm, yeah so you have more freedom to live in kind of a fantasy world well your reality is a a hell of a lot smaller yes but your imagination is infinite right so so naturally you know in a in a fantasy film of any kind whether it's horror or anything the clear delineation is to make sure that the parents and adults are not following that same thought pattern. Because if they do, then visually, as a as metaphorically, they are no longer adults. Right. On one hand, it, it almost has to go that way. Mm-hmm. Well, right. The plot depends on because the adults it, yeah, not listening to the kids. Right, because right. it's a fantasy. It's because it, it has to revolve uh, on those hinges right and every now and then you'll get that one odd character the the adult that seems strange to everybody else right and, well monster squad is a perfect example yeah scary german guy right right he is the one who humors the kids and then when he realizes oh this stuff is real okay well i i'm the only right. adult here i guess i'm going to be the one responsible right. and get he, these kids he legitimizes their concerns for them yeah and for the audience but because he's the kooky outsider, that character in horror films does not legitimize things for the other adults in the story. Yeah. Not until things have gotten so bad that they're... There's no denying there's no, it yeah, anymore. Right, right. right, yeah, yeah. I'm your podcaster now, Nancy. <laughs> Mother's Dirty Little Secret. Well, the word is out. Nancy knows that Fred Krueger is the man in her dreams. And evidently, Mommy knows exactly who Fred Krueger is. I I don't want to say this is the stereotypical exposition scene in the horror film, but it's the stereotypical exposition scene in the horror film where you learn a little bit more about the quote-unquote monster than you did before and possibly either a how to defeat it or b to understand it this one goes a little bit differently though this scene marge takes nancy down to the basement opens up the furnace and is holding something wrapped in cloth and starts telling nancy the story of fred krueger someone who used to live in springwood lived in the neighborhood and was a child killer. 
Now, interestingly enough, in the original script, more of the child molester slash killer aspect was there. Oh. But as they were filming, a huge controversy came out about a private preschool. It was either a preschool or middle school where the children came forward and said they were being molested by the, the teachers on a regular basis. Oh. Not wanting to get slapped with even more restrictions from the MPAA, they toned that aspect down. It's now subtext. Interesting now that that is used as a primary thing in the remake. Oh, yeah. Well, well I mean, because now they don't have to worry about... Well, right, but I mean, he could have just been any kind of a child molester. Right. But it's interesting that they actually tie it to the preschool and they use mm-hmm. that... I did not know that. It's one of the. I did not know that. Hey, oh, it's one of the things about the remake that I actually appreciated. I was like, yeah. Not only are we ramping up the level of boy, Fred Krueger is a piece of shit, but then the whole aspect of, oh, the kids lied. Yeah. And he died for no reason. Had that been Had the way they the stuck movie. With that? I would totally be down with the remake. I would too. Because it would be different enough. Yes. It's like, this is a man who kind of deserves his revenge. I mean, I'm not saying that he should, but he, he deserves it because he was wrongly murdered. Uh, but of course, they don't go that route, yeah. and it's, oh no, I diddled the kids. I totally diddled the kids. So you're just doing the exact yeah. same thing that you did yeah. before. But we're not talking about that shitty remake. Marge tells Nancy of how, unfortunately... When the cops finally did track this guy down, because of paperwork and the the search warrant wasn't signed correctly, all the evidence was inadmissible in court, and Kruger was allowed to walk. Now, I'm sure that at a legal standpoint, or at least at the very bare minimum of the understanding of the law, that might be true, but I cannot imagine a system of law that would allow a known, we found evidence, child killer to walk free. Now, now again, it makes for an interesting story in this horror movie. I would hate to think of the real-world applications of crossing the T's and dotting the lowercase j's would allow somebody to just walk scot-free, but that's neither here nor there. We get this story of how, since the law wasn't going to do anything about it, we were going to do something about it. And she fully admits the parents of Springwood tracked Kruger down, found him in his boiler room, and torched the place and killed him. Vigilante justice. Yep. Totally understandable for the situation which was going on. She shows the claw glove. He can't hurt you. He's not real. He's, he's dead now. Well, Mom, guess what? Something's happening. He might be dead, but he ain't gone. And an interesting thing is there is an actual deleted part of this scene that is circulating online, and we'll leave a link to it in the show notes for this episode. Marge continues her story with one line of dialogue that wasn't kept in the film and informs Nancy that you weren't always an only child. Oh, whoa. And I've always wondered why that wasn't kept in the film, because that that makes the the marriage between Marge and Lieutenant Thompson 
it makes it more understandable how yeah. it deteriorated. Yeah. Because on its surface, if you don't have that line in the movie, like we don't, so I mean, just, just watching the film, it's like he left her because her dealing with her guilt, it was all about getting drunk. It was the drinking. Okay, well, I mean, that's sad. And it kind of a dick move on his part. Maybe he tried to help her, but I, I don't know. I, 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 Lieutenant Thompson didn't seem like the guy to really help all that much. But you slide that line now into it to where they actually had a child and Kruger killed that child. And the guilt of not only killing the man that killed their child, but still missing that child and hiding it so that there's no evidence of them ever having the other child so that Nancy never asks questions. That puts a lot of yeah, weight onto that marriage. That's messed up, and I wish they would have kept I didn't know that. I really wish they would have kept that. Yeah, yeah, me too, me too. I'm your boyfriend now, Nancy. Nancy knows the truth. She knows that she can pull things out of her dream. She's got Fred Krueger's hat. She knows nobody's going to help her, not her parents. No adult is going to be there for her because they all think she's crazy. She's got to do things on her own. So she starts investing in some home defense and uh, booby traps, which I love. I, I love that. It's, it's taking matters into your own hand. I, I, I feel like Nancy, where this film is concerned, is a better role model where the final girl is concerned because most final girls are reactionary. Yeah. It's, oh, God, he's coming to get me. He's coming to get me. Run, run, run. Oh, I, I've, I finally got a knife, and now I'll, I'll try to stab him. Nancy is actually doing something about it. I was going to say, you know, reactionary is a good term. Otherwise, you know, they, they operate defensively, whereas mm -hmm. Nancy is certainly going on the offense. Yes, yes. She intentionally goes into his world. Yeah, she has to. Yeah. I mean, it's either I do this and it works or I do this and I die. Which puts Nancy in the in the same company, I mean, on a, on a smaller scale perhaps, but puts Nancy in the same company as people like Sarah Connor mm -hmm. and Ripley. Yeah. Quite We'd have to go Sarah, Con badass, Sarah Connor T2. Well, Sarah Connor T2. Yes, you're right. Sarah because Connor, T2. Sarah Connor T1... Totally. Yes, you're right. Your you're average right. final girl. It's run, yeah. run, 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 run. Yeah, yeah. Same thing with Laurie Strode. Yeah, yeah. Laurie Strode well, is is reactionary. And the same thing with uh, Sydney in Scream to a certain point in the film. Yeah, a lot of that yeah. is is reactionary until she kind of switches and follows Nancy's model. But yeah, you're right. Ripley and and Sarah Connor from T2 would be better examples. Yeah, Nancy needs Glenn's help though. Her plan is, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm going in, I'm going to pull him out, and I need you to be there to whack the fucker, as she, as she puts it in the film. And unfortunately, that's going to be a little bit hard because Marge, being worried about her child, has put bars on all the windows and the doors, and there's new locks, and it's, it's now a prison. It's, it's literally a fortress that Nancy cannot escape. And unfortunately, Glenn does not listen to the one piece of advice that Nancy gives him. Whatever you do, don't fall asleep. Easier said than done. And it's either one of the coolest effects or one of the 
not so imaginative effects. I, I, I can't decide which one. Well, I mean, I, I've decided because it's in the goods. Glenn is pulled into his bed. There's a hole in his bed. He's pulled through it. And then blood, viscera, is shot out. And they use the rotating room again. Yeah. So that you can actually see the the gallons upon gallons of blood spewing up, which it's really just spewing down in the camera. And the, the room is upside down. But the blood is spilling up and covers the entire ceiling. Again, cool effect, but the human body does not have that much <laughs> in it. So w- when you try to put a little logic to it, because this is not a dream. Yeah, this is... This, well... this is because when you go in there, there's still blood. There might not be a hole in the mattress anymore, but there's still blood. Sure. Glenn has been liquefied some way, somehow, because mom, Glenn's mom opens the door and there's the blood still coming up out of the, the bed. So whether that was a continuity error in which the editor did not pay closer attention to, I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's a call to the audience. Maybe we should ask the audience. Audience, do you feel that Glenn was murdered in a dream? And yes, he was still liquefied, but maybe not to the extent of what we saw in the film. Or was he killed in real time? Was he pulled into the bed, put into a blender on puree, and mom walks in and stumbles upon it? Let us know. Head on over to our website at twoguystalkinghorror.com. Fill out the contact form and let us know your opinion. The final battle. Well, here we go. Game on. You've killed my boyfriend. You've taken everything from me. You're driving me crazy. I'm taking you down or I'm going down swinging. And that's an, I think that's one of the reasons why I love the character of Nancy Thompson so much. When we're introduced to her, she just seems like this level-headed girl that's dealing with, with uh, you know, a, a family of divorce. But she seems to be handling it a lot better than most people would. Okay, and then through all these horrible circumstances, she's driven further and further and further upon the breaking point, yet she still does not break. She's proactive. She sets up all these traps, and she's ready for Freddy. She tucks her mother in. She takes her, her she, she lays down, doesn't take very long because, you know, she hasn't slept in almost a week. And jumps right into the dream world, and and boom, where there's no, there's no precursor. It's not. No, sh- we just get right yeah, to it. it. She's she's right there. She goes down into her basement, and this is the thing that always freaked me out about the ending of this movie: is I've had dreams to where I'm in a part of my house, and all of a sudden there is a door that isn't there normally, mm-hmm. but it's there now. Yeah, and it leads to a horrible, dark place. And that's where Nancy goes, and it leads straight to the boiler room. Of course it does, yeah. Of course. I'm not going to throw this into the bad, but there is an actual continuity error in this section. And it's only for a second. It's it's like maybe two or three frames of film. But as Nancy is looking around Freddie's workbench and is seeing trinkets from her friends that he has kept, we're getting little bits and pieces of him here and there without his hat on. 
because she pulled the hat out of the dream. But when he finally does pop out at her, he's wearing the hat. But then in the very next scene, like literally two seconds later, he's chasing her down a spiral staircase and he's got no hat on. And he has no hat the rest of the film. So, again, just a nice little piece of trivia for anybody listening. There was a huge continuity error where the hat was concerned. If you're the kind of anal retentive ass like me (laughs) that pays attention to that stuff. The chase is on. All of a sudden we're outside the house, which you gotta love the, the landscape of a dream. And it's all about getting Kruger. Come on, Kruger. Let's let's do this. Alarm goes off. She jumps on him. She wakes up. There's nothing there. And the framing is perfect because pieces of the lattice that have been torn down because the bars are up now are seen on top of Nancy when she wakes up. But then as she opens her eyes and struggles, she knocks them away and the camera pulls back. And when we pull back fully, we see the bed but there's nothing else there. So we're led to wonder, was that real and they're on the floor? Or again, was that just a trick of the imagination? And even Nancy doubts herself, thinking, oh, well, no, I guess I am really crazy. And then we get a nice little jump scare from Freddy, which again, that one also used to get me when I was younger. Even even when I knew it was coming, I knew I was going to jump and I would. I would he he Freddy Krueger is my boogeyman. Jason, Michael, Leatherface, they're all great. I love them all. Freddy is my boogeyman. And to be able to watch all of Nancy's traps work and take on Krueger is kind of a cathartic feel for being terrorized <laughs> throughout the whole movie because by this point you're there with Nancy. Yeah. You know, you're, the, the, the terror level has been ratcheted up to 11, and you're feeling just as apprehensive about all this as Nancy is. And watching Kruger get slammed in the chest with a sledgehammer, blown up mm-hmm. by light bulb bombs, I guess we'll call them. <laughs> really cool stuff. But I think the coolest out of everything is lighting him on fire in the basement. Yeah. Story-wise, Awesome. Cool, you've burned the bad guy again. I mean, something that, you know, he probably doesn't want to experience again, seeing that that's how he died. But then look at it as a, as a filmmaking standpoint. Holy crap, that scene does not cut. Yeah. So no. that stunt guy was lit on fire at one end of the basement, goes to the other end, starts going up the stairs, gets knocked down the stairs. And then gets back up and starts going up the stairs again. That's at least 30 seconds, if not maybe a little bit longer, of a full-on body burn. Yeah. That, and that's amazing. That stuntman certainly earned his pay. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Luckily, Lieutenant Thompson breaks breaks into the house with all of his other police officers. Unfortunately, Kruger does take Marge with them. Yeah, they sink into... Into the bed. Yeah. An effect that does not age well. Because you can definitely tell that the burnt-up dead Marge is a mannequin of some sort. And they think everything is fine and dandy and everything. Okay, so, well, they're dead, but he's gone. Yay! But no. Kruger pops back out of the bed. Nancy turns his back on him. 
taking his power from him, as we're, we're, we're led to believe. She opens the door, and it's it's the next day, and it's bright, and it's sunny, but foggy, and you don't know what to think because, you know, we just had all of this, this craziness going and now it looks like, well, was, was that all a dream? And Oh, they're her friends. They're alive. And so it's all gotta be a dream. Or is this a dream? You know, Nancy gets into the car and the car starts acting up on its own and drives away with the kids yelling and screaming for help. And then Marge gets sucked into the window of the door by Freddy's arm and we get the the one two Freddy's coming from you girls in the background and and we fade to black and to be honest you know I I think that a lot of the uh the things towards the end of the film a lot of the continuity issues and a lot of reactions and and things that maybe don't necessarily always add up could be written off as all of that is a dream you mm-hmm. know, which yeah. then begs the question, at what point in the film does it completely switch over and the rest of the film is... It almost becomes Inception uh, right. in the sense that you don't know what's real and what's a dream then at that yeah. point. And so, depending on which way you take it, you could write off some of those continuity issues. True, true. There, there are a lot of people that, that believe that the ending is the only thing that's real. Hmm. And that Nancy has dreamed all of this as kind of like a precognitive warning of what's about to come, Hmm. but she can't stop it. It's kind of like the, no matter what I try to do, I'm not, I'm never going to be able to stop this, even though I know it's coming. It's an interesting angle to look at. Uh, There, I'm sure if we spent even more time, we could probably dissect the meaning of what the ending could or should represent, but that would make this podcast two, three times longer than it already is going to be. A lot of ground covered so far, but there is still more to come during this perspective review of 1984's A Nightmare on Elm Street. We'll be right back after this. Make your podcast soar with the Editor Core. Editing podcasts can be, ugh, rough. Everyone knows that you'll spend at least double the time you use creating the podcast when editing it. Then there's the control freak factor and the gotta get it right the first time. Well, it's time to shove all that out the door and make your podcast soar with the Editor Core. The Editor Core is a talented, experienced team of podcast editors that have edited tens of thousands of hours of podcast content, and they're ready for yours now. Check out EditorCore.com because it's time to make your podcast soar. EditorCore.com. That's EditorCore.com. For most, Friday the 13th means Jason Voorhees. What a lot of people don't know, however, is that there was another Friday the 13th, the television series. Join your podcast hosts, Mike and Nick, as they review the search for cursed antique goods during a perspective review of Friday the 13th, the series. It's the Curious Goods Podcast. Check it out now at CuriousGoodsPodcast.com. That's CuriousGoodsPodcast.com. Dot com. 
Wouldn't it be cool if your advertising could last forever? It can. With perpetual advertising, here's how it works. Magazine, radio, and television ads are efforts that people might see or hear once, and then they're lost forever. Perpetual advertising provides you with the chance for repeat exposure and replayability weeks, months, even years after it's originally inserted inside a podcast. So even if your advertising is included in a podcast years ago, those efforts are still impactful, providing you with true return on investment, real impact, thanks to perpetual advertising. Are you ready to change the way you and your company or organization advertises? Find out more and launch a unique perpetual advertising effort now by visiting twoguystalking.com forward slash sponsors. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, boys and ghouls, to Two Guys Talking Horrors perspective review of 1984's A Nightmare on Elm Street. We've already covered a lot of ground. We've talked about the movie. We've talked about all of the things that we loved about it. But we have to be fair here. We do have to point out some of the uh, dings, some of the scuff marks on the chrome of this classic. Without further ado, the bads. One, two, three's coming for you. Sadly dated feel. Now, of course, we're going to run into this. It is a film from the mid-80s. Technology in filmmaking has changed. Styles in acting have changed. Writing styles have even changed. That being said, some stories, some movies are timeless. And unfortunately, this can't be one of them. Because we do run into a handful of things that definitely dates this film. Yeah, absolutely. Especially in some of the dialogue. Some of the dialogue comes off sometimes as being very stilted yeah. and very forced. Um, Up your nose with a rubber hose? Yeah, yeah, there's certainly that. Maybe if I was a hardcore Christian and never swore <laughs> and never had a drop of drink, but that's not Rod. Yeah, right. <laughs> in cases like that, it unfortunately reeks of a a script from someone who maybe doesn't have that much experience writing scripts. Now, obviously, Craven had two other films before. Mm -hmm. I don't know how many other scripts he had written. You know, there is certainly some fault there in, in just lack of experience, which keeps it from being timeless. I'm mean, having said that, it still was great for the time. Yes, yeah. But that doesn't necessarily always hold up. True, very true. Another thing that can be said is, and I don't, I don't like to nitpick young actors, especially ones that are that are just starting out. But we have a a very young cast of capable actors, but seeing them then and knowing what they can do later on in their career, we get a, I don't want to say an uneven performance from some actors from some characters, but. A balancing act is going on, and sometimes we can see some stumbles. I would, I would almost say an uninformed and maybe not fully matured performance. You know, that doesn't necessarily mean the performances are bad. For that matter, you could go to a high school show and see 
better performances there than maybe you'd see in professional theater. Right, right. It doesn't really have to do with anything other than, again, experience. I think it's still, just like the writing, I think it comes down to the fact that here are actors who were born with a gift. Mm -hmm. And as such, they were naturally, as you said, capable. And were probably better than most others of their age at that time. Yeah. But that still does not change the fact that they were younger and did not have maybe the experience and maturity to take something that was stilted and make it flow easier. Someone like John Saxon can give such an amazing performance regardless of what script you give him because he's had that experience. You look at stuff that Johnny Depp has done well, maybe not recently, but <laughs> up to a certain point, uh, you know, he, he's still so much more committed and so much more into it because he has that experience. Right. So, yes, the performances are certainly lacking, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're bad. Mm-hmm. You also have to think about it. This is a, a crew of people that are. They all have a little experience, and they've all brought it together to pull this all off. Yeah. So there's nobody there that could really say, hey, there's nobody else there that has the experience of such and such plus years that could go, hey, you, you know, maybe do it this way. Because when you think about it, John Saxon, hardly in the movie, important yeah. character in the yeah. film, linchpin of certain scenes, yeah, hardly there. So I seriously doubt he was there watching the kids do it, and then, you know, the younger guys coming up to him asking for advice right. on how to do things acting-wise. You didn't have a Donald Pleasance, and I don't know if Donald Pleasance gave advice in that in Halloween, but certainly more screen time than Saxon has in Nightmare, and and it shows, you know, you can see what Carpenter was gleaming and learning from Pleasance. Whereas you don't, yeah, like you said, you don't have that kind of, <laughs> not intentionally trying to rhyme, but you don't have that kind of presence <laughs> on set. Three, four, lock your door. Dream sequences are too linear. Again, this is probably something that could be lumped in with our previous point of datedness because you only had a just under $2 million to pull all this stuff off. CGI doesn't even exist. And trying to actually pull off what a dream really feels like would have been, at that point in time, probably a Herculean obstacle to get over. So I understand, I, I, I and I even praised them while we were talking about the film during the goods. I praised them on the little things that they did to give you that dreamlike effect. The problem is, is that most dreams are not super linear. They're patchworks. They're all, all of a sudden you're in one place and then you transition to somewhere else or someplace else, whether it be inside or outside. The characters will change. People will morph in front of you from one person that you recognize to somebody completely different. Mm-hmm. Now, again, totally understand that they couldn't pull something like that off back then. But I think maybe a more fractured feel in certain dream sequences could have given us a more well-rounded experience where the dreaming was concerned because 
most of the dream sequences were pretty much the same. It's okay. So person's walking through a strange area and they eventually end up in the boiler room and they're chased and maybe sometimes they're running in place because they can't get away even though it looks ridiculous on film (sighs) i think maybe with a little bit more forethought and planning they could have done something a little bit more interesting so I have to I have to put this into the bad category because everybody dreams whether you remember them or not that's regardless everybody dreams I myself have very rarely ever had a linear dream maybe a section of my dream was linear but the entire dream in and of itself not so much even if it was linear you know like you said you can open a door and go into another room and you're in a completely different almost story yeah or you might be in a dream and you might be running away from something and you might end up running to another story in a sense. And and then whatever you were running away from suddenly is no longer consequential because you've moved on. And so you, there still might be a an A to B to C to D aspect, but yes, it's still disjointed. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I agree. I think that would have been nice to have some of that. Maybe some um, almost even Tarantino-esque editing in some of it maybe would have been something different. Stereotypical parents. Now, we we touched on this earlier during the goods. You kind of have to have the adults, mostly the parents, but the adults, they can't believe what the kids, whether they're small or, or teenagers, doesn't matter. As long as you're under my roof, I'm not going to believe a word you say that's fantasy-filled. Uh, you're just you're, you're smoking too much toot. And it seems like in this film, though, at least where the parents are concerned, where Marge and Lieutenant Thompson are concerned, and, and maybe this was intentional, and I don't know why, but if it was intentional, the the fact that even though... There's evidence showing that something supernatural is happening that is connected to an event that these two people are responsible for. They are so far in denial that they cannot accept anything but what they see in front of their eyes, even though that what they see in front of their eyes is also supernatural in nature. Yeah, I think it's it's even more so than that. I think in in some of the ways that the the adults are portrayed, even it, it comes off as well almost condescending. You know the way yeah. that they yeah, the way that they good. speak to to the other to the kids to the teenagers. It's almost as if, and again, maybe this was intentional. And if it was intentional, then I personally would have to remove it from the bad. I just don't know if it was intentional, but. It almost seems like all of the parents are acting the way a kid would see a parent act. Hmm. Yeah. You know, so if the film, if the majority of the film is a dream, if we're going with that angle, if that's what the ending of the film shows, and, I, and I'm not saying it does, but, right. but if that's what it shows, then in that case, the stereotypical nature of the parents makes total sense. Right. Because, sure, a teenager would not 
understand. All the teenager is going to hear is mom and dad and the other adults say, no, don't do that. What they're not hearing is they're not hearing the adults say, listen, you can't do that. Here's why. Let me help you. But when you're a teenager, you don't hear that. Right. If it's intentional, I retract it from the bad personally. I'm just not entirely certain that it is. Yeah. yeah. I, I think in 1984, I think that horror films at that time typically were parents don't listen to the kids because the teenagers that go to see the movies can identify with that very easily and you can sell a lot more tickets that way. Right. And to me, I, I find that a little annoying at times. And, and and this film doesn't do it anywhere near as badly as other films. So yes, we've put it in the bad category, but but don't mistake that as us saying that it's awful and unwatchable right. because of that. It's it's not at all. But it is just something that does unfortunately send up a red flag and kind of detract. Seven, Finale's timetable makes no sense at all. So in preparing for this episode, I actually had planned to sit down, write out all the times that people were saying, and all the times that showed up on the clock. Then I realized that that would just be futile, and it would make me more upset, because it is the one glaring problem that I have with this movie. All the other bads that we've talked about, you could kind of just brush them away with a little bit more thought and, and debate. Probably, we probably could. This one, no, there's no getting around it. I'll set the scene. Nancy calls Glenn, says, hey, at midnight, I'm going to enact my plan. I'm going to go to sleep. I'm going to be asleep for 10 minutes. And then I'm pulling Kruger out and you're going to whack him. Be ready. Glenn falls asleep. His mother wakes him up. It's almost midnight, Glenn. You're, you're listening to your records, but you've got the TV on. You should go to bed. Well, here it is. It's just about to turn midnight. Nancy decides to call Glenn to make sure that he's, he's awake. Well, Mommy and Daddy answer the phone and don't want Nancy talking to Glenn. Because of that, Glenn falls asleep. Now is the end of our broadcast day. And the TV goes... And then the and back in those days, kids, that's what happened at midnight before cable <laughs> yeah. TV actually went off the air off completely the air. at midnight. Yep. Yep. All gone. Goodbye. Nothing more to watch here. Glenn gets sucked down into the uh, into the bed. So that's at midnight at midnight. But then Nancy calls her father at the house because he's there for the crime scene. And it's only been like 10 minutes. One is now supposed to believe that in the time that Glenn died, police were called, four patrol cars showed up along with an ambulance and the coroner and everybody else. There's a whole house full of people in 10 minutes. That doesn't even happen today. And there's more people and, and better technology. So I'm not going to believe that it's going to happen back then. But again, it's movies. No big deal. The problem I have is that the conversation she has with her father is, Daddy, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna bring him in and you're you're gonna be there to stop him, you know, in fifteen minutes. So twelve thirty ish. And then we get the montage of preparing all the booby traps. I'm sorry. I don't even I don't care if you're Arnold Schwarzenegger with Sylvester Stallone helping out. 
you're not getting all of that set up throughout the house in 15 minutes. Kevin McAllister did it in less time than that in Home Alone. What are you talking about? My (laughs) point exactly. So what we're supposed to believe is that actually the younger that you get, the faster you're able to do things. I think it's just Kevin McAllister. Oh, that was his superpower. (laughs) That was his superpower. Yeah. Yeah, the, the the whole timetable well, of Nancy getting things prepared from the from the time that she calls Glenn to set all this stuff up, from the time that she pulls Kruger out, does not match I, up. I completely agree with you, one hundred percent. Good, but uh, I'm going to play devil's advocate just because you bastard, and because sometimes it's fun to watch your head explode. But I, <laughs> but I, to preface, I I do agree with you. But l- let's just say that the whole movie is a dream, or 90% of the movie is a dream. Suddenly, the timeline there doesn't need to make sense. I don't know that any of that was intentional. So much like the way the parents are viewed, if it was intentional, then I'm okay with it. But I don't think it was. I don't think it was intentional. I think it was just a lack of connecting the timetable properly. And, you know, again, like the parents, you know, I said that that I don't think was intentional either. And the reason I think that way for both cases is something that we'll talk about next. But one could argue, if they wanted to, yeah, that it doesn't have to make sense time-wise because it's all a dream, if you wanted to. Which is a lame way to look at it. So I refuse to do that. <laughs> well, I'm with you. <laughs> you. You actually had me doubting myself for a split second there in the beginning while you were talking. But then you talked yourself out of it. So I'm well, glad I'm glad I'm I'm back. I'm about to talk out of it completely here in just a second. Nine, ten, never sleep again. Not a scary ending. This is probably the biggest black mark to put on a horror movie is if you're going to have a hook for the end of your film, it's got to be a good hook. And what I find interesting is that from what I have read and from what I have heard, Craven did not want a hook at the end of the film. That his intent was that the film would end happily and that everything up until the end was a dream and the kids are all okay and then they drive away and it was producer robert shea who wanted a scary ending and the compromise was what they came up with it's actually a combination of three different endings oh no see i didn't hear about the other third one ending was freddie was actually going to be driving the car Mm -hmm. away Mm -hmm. one ending the top wasn't going to come up, but the car would still drive away. And then the other ending was, you know, Marge being pulled through the window. And they actually ended up using all of the endings. And I think all that does is is help serve up a confusing ending for people. And because you have these multiple endings that are blended, because we have been told that Craven intended for the ending to be a happy ending. Right. I she think defeated the monster. She yes, gets to live. I think that is what discounts any of the thoughts about any discrepancies being part of a dream. Yeah. Because with the ending the way it is, 
or even with the ending that Shay wanted, whichever of the two, right? You can you can fill in enough blanks to go that route or have question or have debate. With Wes Craven's ending, there is no question. Right, yeah. And when you start to mix the two, all that does is dilute the certainty of Craven's ending. But his ending is still there. Yeah. His yeah. his touch is still there, which is why I say that anything that we've discounted as being possibly part of a dream, that doesn't work. Those those things that fall under the bad category, you cannot write off as being part of a dream because that's not what was intended. Mm-hmm. Now, you might watch it that way, and you might enjoy it more that way. Right. That's certainly a possibility. You can always change the way you view a film when you watch it, but that was not the way it was intended. Yeah. For me, personally, I think if you wanted to have a hook for your ending but not try to go for the Carrie jump scare or the Friday the 13th jump scare, then it's the kids are in the car, the top goes up, they're trying to get out, it drives away, and you slowly pan over to the little girls doing the jump rope song, Fade to Black. Yeah, that'd be much creepier. Yeah. Yeah. You don't need to have Freddy's arm coming out and grabbing Marge and pulling her through the window because that's ridiculous. Yeah. And the funny thing is, is that everybody, including Bob Shea, agrees now that, yes, it is ridiculous. Yeah. Well, that was our brief list of things that we thought were bad, and we used the word bad loosely. Yes, especially with this film. With this film. But we want to know what you thought could have used a little bit of work in 1984's A Nightmare on Elm Street. Head on over to our website at twoguystalkinghorror.com, fill out the contact form, and let us know your thoughts. Whatever you do, don't podcast in your sleep. We're nearing the end, but first, we must reveal our ratings for this film, 1984's A Nightmare on Elm Street. The scale works thusly. Ten is on top of the heap. A perfect rotating room shot filled with blood, viscera, and gore. (laughs) A one is on the bottom of the scale, filled with Marge somehow fitting through that tiny window (laughs) and Kruger's arm being able to support all that weight. Everything starts at a seven as an average. Scale goes up with good points. The scale goes down with bad points. And Jason, there are no halvesies. So on a scale to one to ten... What do you got, Jason? For the film entire. Yes. Over the years, I have not only come to love the film, but I've come to appreciate the film both from a horror standpoint and from a filmmaking standpoint. Yeah. For the contribution to the genre and to filmmaking in general and to pop culture. Aside from that, you know, as I've come to respect the film so much over the years due to those those reasons, I've also come to respect the film more as just a horror film, mm. as just a fun film. Every once in a while, we'll watch all the Freddy movies in order. Right. But 
you know, I just did that a couple of years ago, and, you know, it'll probably be a couple of years before I do that again. But every year, I always watch, at least certainly around Halloween, if not multiple times throughout the year, I always watch three Freddy films. I always watch Freddy vs. Jason, because how much fun is that? Right. I always watch Nightmare 3. Dream Warriors, I, yeah, yeah. it's the second best in the series. And I always watch the first one. And to be honest, if I can't, don't have the time during Halloween to get around to part three, I'll keep it to just the two. But I watch that first one all the time because it is fun and it is the core of Freddy. Now, I do enjoy the goofier Freddy as it goes on, and that's fun, but, you know, we're not talking about a scale of one to ten on enjoyment. Right. You know, you can enjoy a good, you can enjoy a bad film. It's oh, totally yeah. possible. Yeah. And you can watch a brilliant film and not enjoy it enough to want to watch it over and over again. Right. That doesn't change the fact that the film is still brilliant. So, you know, we are talking about quality here. And yeah, I, I think I'm going to have to go with an eight on this one. All right. Interesting. Interesting. For me, if, we were to talk to 10-year-old Nick, it'd be a 10. Sure. Freddy Krueger was everything to me. Even though he scared the hell out of me, there was also something about the character. And it's not even the the goofiness that that you touched upon that eventually the character turns into a game show host almost later on in the series. And that's all well and good. You know, it's it's always nice to have that humor mixed with your horror. But the early films sticks to horror. And especially this movie here. This kind of sets the bar for horror. So while younger me would praise this movie and say it's it's flawless and give it a 10, I too have to agree with you and rate this an 8. It's more than average. Definitely more than average. Absolutely. But looking at it and after talking about some of the issues that we had with the film, it's nowhere near perfect. So, an eight it is. That's where we want to know what you would rate 1984's A Nightmare on Elm Street. Head on over to our website at twoguystalkinghorror.com, fill out the contact form, and give us your rating. For the introduction of one Fred Krueger. Well, that's it. That's everything we've got to cover. Technically speaking, if we covered every facet of this film, there would have to be a series of podcasts. And I just don't. You and I could talk about Freddy Krueger movies and, you know, for for days and weeks and years probably oh yeah yeah. and we will continue this perspective review series we will review every single nightmare film eventually it will happen in order so yes that's right be on the lookout for freddy's revenge a nightmare on elm street 2 perspective review that's coming in the future or if you're in the future it's there in the archive confused yet i know i am Until next time, I'm Nicholas J. Hearn, one of your hosts. I'm Jason Contini, your other host. And remember, don't be afraid of the dark. Be afraid of what's in the dark.
Congratulations. You've survived this episode of Two Guys Talking Horror. We hope you were entertained and informed by our program. Take what you have learned and pass it on to your family and friends. It may just save their lives someday. Have questions? Comments? Suggestions for a future episode? Visit our website at twoguystalkinghorror.com. Click anywhere on the right-hand side and fill out our short web form. It's the easiest way to interact with the hosts. Beware of monsters, creatures, and all things that go bump in the night. And keep telling yourself, it's only a podcast. It's It's only a podcast. It's only a podcast. It's It's only a podcast. It's only a podcast. It's It's only a podcast. podcast.